This is the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. It's the dead of winter at the time of this recording, and in Oklahoma where we live, all the trees are bare. Just a few months ago, the big tree in our front yard was full of green leaves, basking in the sun, flittering in the breeze, giving shade at certain times of the day when the blistering summer sun hit it from an angle. And then came fall the most glorious season for this particular tree. When the days grow shorter and the nights much colder, the tree changes and the leaves turn a glorious deep red, really amazing. Imagine a maple in all its glory, only this tree is not a maple. I can't remember what kind, in fact. My neighbor used an app last year to pull up the type of tree, but it slipped me right now. But whatever it is, it's a beautiful tree. I wish that it could hold its fall leaves all winter, but it doesn't. No, there's just a small window where the leaves hold tight to the tree, showing off their blazing red hue. But eventually they succumb to the blustery winds of approaching winter. Now, my tree does hold much longer than others in the neighborhood, usually still boasting its red leaves a full month after all the others in the neighborhood have finished their show. But in the end, the tree in our front yard finally gives way to winter as well. And one by one, all the leaves dropped pick up by the wind and join all the others that have already littered the neighborhood, a conglomerate of leaves from any and all trees mixed in together, having scattered from their assigned front or backyards, now littering and clogging the flower beds and fence lines of the neighborhood. It's a random scattering, no order to it. All the dried, crinkly leaves tossed around by God's massive leaf blower called the wind, mixed and unmatched, ending up wherever the last latest gust randomly directed them. The leaves from the tree in my front yard have dispersed for the winter, and even if I wanted to gather them all and super glue them back in place on the tree, it would be an impossible task because they have scattered in every which direction and there's no regathering and reordering them possible. As we turn a corner in the book of Acts, Stephen has become the first martyr of the church, a faithful man full of the Holy Spirit, but not one of the notorious 12 apostles. He was a waiter who had served faithfully at the tables of the widows who were supported by the church. Now confronted by the religious leaders whom he schooled from their own history, Stephen had pointed out their pattern of rejecting those that God had sent through the ages. And they often didn't get the messages the first time, but they they will come to their senses the second time around. And now in Acts chapter eight, we see the believers in the church scatter heading out in every direction because the persecution and opposition to these early believers has been unleashed. There's no holding back now. And with targets on their backs, they leave the comfort of Jerusalem and scatter every which way to the four corners of the wind. Let's pick up in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. The church is still reeling from the death of Stephen. No one expected things would go that direction when he was falsely accused by the religious elite of sedition and blasphemy. But after Stephen showed them in a proverbial mirror their own hearts, that they were a stiff-necked people who ignored all the signs and rejected the sent Messiah, they shut up their ears and their hearts and they took up stones and put him to death, the first martyr of many in the church. Everyone is still in shock. We read in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8 of the book of Acts. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And the devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. 
There has already been some opposition to the church in the book of Acts. Peter and John had already been in prison after healing the lame man. The church praying for them in their release. And they had all prayed for greater boldness to keep preaching Jesus. And the Lord answered, giving them boldness and granting more signs and miracles. Stephen himself emboldened to be a witness, just as Jesus had promised in Acts 1 uh, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The word witness there was martus, from which we get the word martyr. And so Stephen is the fulfillment of that testifying of Jesus to the very end, even if it meant martyrdom. The Spirit enabling him to do beyond what would be naturally possible, imparting to Stephen the resolve to keep standing up for Jesus, even in hard times. Jesus told his followers that he would not leave them as orphans, but that he would come to us, the Holy Spirit, and walk with us through any and everything that our life in Christ would not be solely to what we can bring to the table, our own strength, our own resources, our own words, our own resolve, but that we would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, not earn the power or muster up the power, but receive it as a gift. And Stephen showed us that, that the Spirit allowed him to testify to the very end, no matter how hard it got. And we read now in Acts 8 that a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. There was already some persecution, like when Peter and John were detained, but now a great persecution. No hiding it, no holding back. It is unleashed. And Saul, who will become Paul, is a leader in this movement to eradicate, something he will later mourn as he laments his role in trying to stamp out the name of Jesus. But it would be the mercy that he would receive in spite of doing this, that Jesus would accept even him who had persecuted the church, church, and that would drive his message of the gospel of grace. But for now, things are really intense. Saul is going into homes, going door to door. It says in verse 3 that he made havoc of the church. The word in Greek means to maltreat or to outrage or to lay waste the church. It was not just a simple annoyance or inconvenience or a disruption to what they were normally doing. He made havoc, turned it on its side, ruined all that they had going on. Many churches experienced something like this during COVID. All that had been they've been doing suddenly turned upside down. All the meetings and routines and rhythms of what they were used to made havoc of. Everything was sent into a spiral. And it made churches seek the Lord to find out what to do to keep doing what Jesus wanted them to do, to be faithful to gather and shepherd God's people. But it definitely upset the apple cart, causing all the normal things to be challenged. That's what the early church experiences here. Saul makes havoc in the church. Everything is impact impacted, and the comfort and the routines that they were all used to, suddenly now out of order, and things were now uncomfortable. And Saul is hunting for Christians and carting them off if he finds them. How scary. Can you imagine how unsettling? Do you just go on with life and wait until your family is divided and torn apart? Or do you take preemptive measures and head out? Well, many of them did leave at that point, left the city and headed out nearby to Judea and Samaria, the larger areas around Jerusalem. The church begins to scatter. But unlike the leaves on the tree in my front yard, which have gone every which way with no intentionality, the word we find for scatter in Acts chapter 8 implies something a bit more calculated 
strategic in fact, not just a chaotic dispersal to take those believers, quote, wherever the wind blows. They're not just scattered in a chaotic or haphazard way, like when a clumsy kid trips and drops a jar of marbles, or the grocery bag rips and the oranges you just bought hit the ground and hit every which way in the parking lot, or the electric beaters emerge from the batter that you're making and scatter the cake mix all over you and the cabinets, or the confetti is blasted into the air and goes every which way. We are all familiar with those kind of scatterings, where everything just goes everywhere and there's no tracking or taking inventory because everything has been haphazardly dispersed. But more so, the word here implies they are strategically scattered. The word is diaspero, and it is used only three times in the New Testament, twice in this chapter and one more time in the book of Acts. This word for scatter is from two words, one word meaning through and the other being sown like when a farmer sows seeds. They scatter it, but strategically with a goal to have it take root and bear fruit. It is sown through the soil, intentionally put in place for intended fruitfulness. Other words for scatter in the New Testament are for things like scattering a crowd, breaking up a crowd and sending them off to disperse them, or scatter to get rid of something as if to waste it, or scatter like when they went into exile. But this scatter is to sow them, like seed. So unlike my fall leaves that have all gone randomly each and every way, with no rhyme or reason other than how the wind has blown them, the persecuted believers were scattered, or maybe better put, they were sown in other places to bear fruit. Jesus told his disciples on the heels of telling them that he was the vine and that they were the branches this, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. We are called to be fruitful believers. That brings God glory. And as much as these disciples in Jerusalem are blessed to be there, God will be glorified if their lives bear fruit. And a mature fruit will have seeds. It's a defining mark of a piece of fruit. In a botanical sense, a fruit is the fleshly or dry ripened ovary of a flowering plant, enclosing the seed or seeds. So, of course, apples, oranges, bananas, those are fruits. They've got seeds. But surprise, even tomatoes are fruit. So are avocados. And cucumbers are fruit, too. And zucchini and corn is a fruit. And pumpkins and olives, they're fruits, too. All of them are actually fruit because they bear seeds. And when mature, those seeds can reproduce. And once Christians are mature enough and ripe in their faith, we are to bear fruit. It glorifies the Father. And the church in Jerusalem has had time now to grow and mature, all together under the teaching and leadership of the apostles. But now it is time for them to be released. And so part of that in God's plan means that they need to be scattered, sown elsewhere, to begin bearing fruit for the gospel and the kingdom. Until this point, Jerusalem has been the epicenter of the Christian movement, and what an amazing place it has been to be. The Spirit poured out on the day of Pentecost when people from all over the known world were gathered, hearing the gospel, and 5,000 were saved that day. In fact, many from other areas likely stayed in Jerusalem, seeking teaching and fellowship and connection in the body of Christ, rather than going back home where there were no believers. We saw in Acts chapter 2 that they gave themselves continually to the apostles' doctrine, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And this was a fruitful formula for the first believers. 
We saw that early on that they began to give, that none of them saw what they had as their own, but many gave up what they had to help support the others, laying at the apostles' feet to distribute as needed. It was a great season, a fruitful season, a blessed season. But as much as they thought that they had a good thing, the Lord had other plans, a bigger picture in mind, to bring the gospel out of Jerusalem. We can get comfortable spiritually where we are, with what we have, who we're with, and we find a good thing and a good rhythm, and we want to hold on to that. We all wish that we could hold on to those great moments and seasons of life. We wish that they would never end. How many a parent has lamented as their babies grew up too quickly, wishing that they could freeze time and never have to leave that place? Or that vacation you wish would go on and on and on? Or the conversation you want to continue and hope never gets interrupted? Or the season of life that seems so good you want to put life on pause and hang on forever? I remember being a kid on the playground at Kihei Elementary School, playing in the tunnel or the bars or in the arbor that we had, or tetherball. But on the playground, there was this thing that the kids got into called lock game. So if you're playing something with your friends, as friends, at some point, if you would all agree to lock the game, meaning that no one else could join the game, no one knew. Whoever was in was grandfathered in, but no one else could get in on the game. It was an immature attempt at exclusivity, to commit to being BFFs at least until the recess bell rang, but the game was locked. And if anyone else wanted in, you would just smugly say, sorry, locked game, meaning that they needed to go elsewhere, but there was no breaking into this social circle on the playground. We can try to hang on to a good thing, even when it comes to seasons of our spiritual life. Certain places or people or circumstances that were so good. Maybe it was a youth group that you went to or a Bible college that you attended or a certain church you were part of or a home group that you were involved with. Or maybe a season of ministry that was really blessed, or a certain group that we fellowship with, a discipleship group or prayer group or a ministry team that really clicked. We want to lock the game, to hold on to what we have, to cling to it and not want to let it go. I think Peter the Apostle did this when he and James and John were on the mountain with Jesus in the Gospels, and Jesus was transfigured before them, and Moses and Elijah appeared, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, It is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Essentially, Peter was saying, let's just stay here. Let's lock this game. Let's stay up on this mountain and not go down to join the other disciples again. Let's hold on to this moment and never leave. This is great. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has put eternity in our hearts. And those moments that we want to hold on to, They're often glimpses of heaven and all we long to experience there. And it's the closest thing to it here on this earth, those good places of life, and we want to hold on to them. But we can't. We press on and we look forward to one day never having to be torn away from those things, never having to have those moments cut short. But for the early church and for many of us, we find that we would stay there if we could, but God sees that it is not the best that that is not fruitful in the long run. So God orchestrates circumstances or other things to make us move on, to push us out, to move forward in faith, rather than get stuck in a rut. So there are times that he sends us out from the church that we're comfortable in, or pushes us to take the next step in ministry, or releases us from being discipled to now making disciples. 
to allow or allowing us more freedom and independence to, to our children, giving them room to step a bit further out of the nest and stretch their wings. It's a move God will have for us with a goal of bearing more fruit. Though these circumstances in Acts chapter 8 in Jerusalem are not good, the persecution and the fear and the opposition and the havoc, God is using these things. The Spirit is leading. And the church begins to scatter, to be sown in the nearby fields of Judea and Samaria, to be more fruitful. While they had a good and comfy thing in Jerusalem, they were ultimately called to the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that he had commanded them, with a promise that he would be with them always, even to the end of the age. And in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus had reiterated this, telling them that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they would be witnesses to Jesus in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, they were hunkered down in Jerusalem still, a good thing that they had, even with the religious leaders a thorn in their side. But God has a greater plan in mind, and it does not involve them all staying huddled together, growing spiritually fat, enjoying their own spiritual comfort. It was time for them to get out of the nest. And since they may not be inclined on their own to do so, the Lord begins to force them out through this persecution lighting a bit of a fire under them to cause them to get up and go, as he sows them purposefully in nearby fields to begin bearing fruit there. There are seasons to remain faithful right where we are, and there are times when God will say, get up and go, and he can communicate it in a way that we will pick up on. For the believers in this part of Acts, they have the message loud and clear. Rather than waiting for the doorbell to ring and Saul standing there to cart them off to prison, they go. Much of the time, I think as believers, we, we find God leading us through peaceable open doors. God just seems to open up a direction and you have a peace about it, a blessing. Everything seems to line up, to really click, and it's blessed. But notice here in Acts 8, these people are not really let out just in peace. They were let out in necessity, in hardship, not the best circumstances. And God can and does lead us out in those ways sometimes. And while we would all probably prefer the good and victorious and prosperous leadings, when we have a right perspective that wherever we go is fine as long as Jesus is with us, then we can take comfort no matter how or what pushed us to move. I think most of us don't like when things shake a bit, when we might have plans and purposes and goals and they might get interrupted. And we can pray, Lord, help us. This must be the enemy, spiritual warfare. And it can and often may be opposition coming against things God is doing. But there is some freedom when circumstances, even adverse ones, begin to dictate the plan, the next steps that we have to take. Not something we've planned or plotted or calculated, but it's almost a, here is the next move that you will be taking. And there is some freedom in that, of just accepting it, of knowing the Lord is moving in a way that you did not anticipate. And no matter how hard or adverse or challenging the things are that have disrupted or caused the next responses you need to take, that Jesus has promised in the Great Commission that, lo, he is with us always, even until the end of the age. That he goes with us, even when it is not the next move that we would have desired or chosen. And the first believers are now on the road and on the run, not something that they would have sought. But God is sowing them strategically now in other places. And here is what we read next, Acts 8, verses 4 through 8. 
Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. The apple cart has been upset, and the church in Jerusalem is scattered. But they don't go into hiding or find the nearest cave or bunker and hunker down. They went everywhere preaching the word. This attempt to silence the church totally backfires. It just spreads the word even further. The proverbial don't throw water on a grease fire because it will splatter and scatter. That's exactly what happened here. The church was burning brightly for Jesus in Jerusalem. And this scattering just made it spread because they went everywhere preaching the word. They did not just send out Bibles or gospel tracts to tell others about the gospel. They went everywhere, and they preached the word everywhere that they went. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his second letter, You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ. He said to the believers there that they were the epistle, known and read by everyone, clear epistles of Christ. People would see their lives and hear the message. But the Christians in Acts who were scattered preached the word everywhere. They preached the word. The word for preach means to bring good tidings, to bring good news. They brought the good news of the gospel wherever they went. They did not go silently or subtly. They just spoke it and shared it. That should be a prayer and goal for us, shouldn't it? To find a way to drop in the word in every situation. Because the Bible does have something to say about everything in life. And everyone could use more of the word. So, what does the Bible say about that? We can preach the word everywhere, because there is always a place for the word of God. Unfortunately, much of our world and our lives and our communities are suffering from a lack of the word of God, or because of an ignoring of the word of God. So we'd all benefit with a bit more of his word everywhere, in every part of our lives. And we don't necessarily need to be Bible thumpers or Bible beaters or find a scripture reference for every conversation that we have. But with the wisdom and guiding of the Spirit, there is room to share the word everywhere and in every situation in life, almost every conversation. What does God have to say about that, we can ask? And then turn to scripture or point to scripture or quote scripture and say, that's what he says right there. And we are told that Philip goes to Samaria. Philip, this is one of the seven that were chosen back in Acts chapter 6, to tend to the daily distribution of food for the widows in the church. Philip was one of those, along with Stephen, who was just martyred. So imagine, Philip has just lost his friend, one of his ministry team. Stephen was a faithful man, full of the Spirit, doing exactly what the Lord had called him to do. And what just happened? The first martyr? I can imagine the struggles those first believers faced, Philip included. God, if you're so good, then why did this happen to Stephen? Or, but God, Stephen was doing all the right things. Why did you forsake him? I'm sure there are questions that they are wrestling with, but they don't take a break from following God or retreat in disillusionment and hang up their ministry coats as they work through the tough questions. Though they may not fully understand, they trust that God is still in control and that God is still good. And they still proclaim the good news, preaching everywhere, proclaiming the glad tidings, even as they wrestle through hard things. 
We can be fickle proclaimers of the good news. When life is good and all is going great and according to our plans and likings, we talk all about Jesus and how good he is and how much he's blessing us. But as soon as it gets hard or we have questions or we're wrestling with things, we go quiet or MIA or take a back seat until God proves himself to us again. But not Philip. He has just lost one of his closest ministry partners, maybe even one of his best friends. And he probably does not understand and wrestles with what is going on, but he goes to Samaria and speaks the good news of Jesus. Notice where he ends up in the scattering. It's Samaria. Now those reading this might shudder. There was great animosity towards Samaria. These were a mixed race people, part Jew, but mixed in with the Assyrian blood during the invasion. At one point, they had built their own temple, not fellowshipping with the rest of the Jews in Jerusalem. There was a pretty big division between Jews and Samaritans. Heading north, Jews would even cross the Jordan to go across the border, take the long route around Samaria, and then come back into the land, rather than go through their part of the territory. It was the proverbial bad neighborhood, the bad part of town in the mind of the Jew. If you wanted a villain or corrupt person in a story, you would throw in a Samaritan. Which is why Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan caught them all off guard. Because, well, what Jew had ever heard of a Good Samaritan? And of all the places to be scattered, Philip goes there, to the undeserving Samaritans. Samaria would not have been ideal, was probably not first on any Jew's list. But Philip went there and made the most of where God gave him to go. We did not always get to choose where we were sent, and is not always to our liking. When the young prophet Jeremiah received his call in Jeremiah 1 verse 7, we read, But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you. And wherever I command you, whatever I command you, you shall speak. The Lord does not always take into consider consideration our preferences, but we shall go to all to whom he sends us, shouldn't we? Who has God sent you to in this season? Maybe the band of misfits that you're trying to minister to, or the hardened hearts that seem so distant from God, or the seemingly unresponsive family that appears to have no interest, or the tiny church that is struggling to survive, or the monotonous job that seems to have no open doors, or the hospital room that seems so confining, or the prison cell that seems so isolating. Perhaps it is your Samaria in this season. Not the place you would have chosen or think is deserving of your time and your attention, but remember that God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. The whole world, even that little piece of Samaria that he has stuck you in at the moment. And like Philip, it's a chance for you to share the good news. But you might say, Justin, I have been sharing the good news here. I have been scattering the seed and nothing seems to be happening. Often what we sow in this season, we will reap in a later season. I planted a few herbs a couple of years ago, some basil in particular, in a raised garden that we tried for a few years. But we weren't around enough to tend to it and keep it during the summer, often, often back and again and without much consistency to care for a garden. But the basil, well, it did just fine. It took care of itself. And by the end of the season, there were not really basil plants. They were really basil bushes. A few varieties too, some Thai basil, some sweet basil, a few other kinds. And we make pesto with it or throw the basil into some stir fry or plenty of basil to enjoy. And when winter set in, the basil dried up and died out. 
So I grabbed those bushes by the roots and pulled them up and out of the raised bed and walked them over the trash can on the other side of the yard, and I threw them in, and that was that. But the dried basil bushes, as I pulled them up and moved them across the yard, apparently the seeds were scattered everywhere, all over the raised beds, but even on the pathway to the trash can and even around the trash can, because the next year and each year since then, the basil comes back by itself. A full garden of basil each year, but even little basil plants sprouting in between the pavers in the walkway and little basil sprouts coming up in the gravel around where we keep the trash can. I pull most of it up in the spring, but if I were to let it go beyond the sprouting stage, I would have basil everywhere because that seed was scattered. And seasons down the line, it comes up where I never expect it to. Paul told the Corinthians, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. But he told the Galatians not to grow weary in doing good, knowing at the proper time they would reap if they did not lose heart. Jesus said in a parable that the farmer would sow in one season and go about his work, and later in the harvest, it would be waiting to put in the sickle. God's word will not return void. So if you're feeling like there isn't much impact with the seed you are scattering or God has scattered you, just wait a season or two. You just might be surprised what will spring forth eventually. So Philip is in Samaria. And as Philip pushed aside his own junk he was working through, and as he embraced what God had for him in that season and said, Yes, Lord, verses 6 through 8 tell us, And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Remember, this is not one of the first tier of apostles. This is Philip, a deacon whose primary ministry was waiting tables. But as he was faithful in the little things, God gave him even more. And the multitude, with one accord, heeds the things Philip speaks about. Part of this was not just the message was powerful and true and convincing, but the miracles which God did through Philip. God was doing miracles through Philip, this faithful disciple, not one of the first tier of disciples, but the next generation. And we see this shift in Acts. The work of Jesus is going beyond Jerusalem and beyond the work of those 12 that walked with Jesus. In fact, the focus in the rest of the book of Acts will focus more on what God is doing beyond the original apostles. Some of them are not even mentioned in the book. We will get a bit more focus on Peter and James, but for the most part, the work now expands as the Great Commission is fulfilled by the Holy Spirit through his church. These Sumerians don't really know a Peter or a James or a John. Who's that, they might ask? But they knew a Philip. And God was using this man there in Samaria. Some may never hear of a Billy Graham or a Spurgeon, or a Corey Ten Boom, or a Chuck Smith, or whatever famous and qualified Christian you want to insert here. But Jesus will give you and I access to people in places that they may never be able to reach. You might be the Billy Graham to those few people God has placed in your life. You might be the Chuck Smith to that small group of people around you where he has you. And if we can commit to the Lord wherever he has scattered us and be trusting and walking in his spirit and open to how he might use us and step in faith through each door, each open door that he gives to us, we might just be blown away with the impact he can have right where we are. For the Samaritans that Philip encountered, well, verse 8 tells us, and there was great joy in that city. I don't think it's often that we see great joy in a city or community. 
I'm thinking of the ticker tape parades at the end of World War II when the soldiers returned. That was some great joy. Or recently, we caught part of the classic movie, The Wizard of Oz. And in Munchkinland, they are thrilled that Dorothy's house landed on the Wicked Witch. And they sing and dance about it. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Witch old witch, the Wicked Witch. Ding dong, the Wicked Witch is dead. There was great joy in that city. Our cities and worlds and spheres tend to be divided. Or isolated, or passive, or calloused, or riled up over something or other. But great joy? Imagine that. Samaria was filled with great joy. People were being set free in the name of Jesus. Demonic, the demonically oppressed people and possessed were freed. Lame and paralyzed were healed and walking again. And people rejoiced to see the freedom that Christ was bringing, and rejoiced that this good news that their neighbors in Jerusalem had been enjoying was now coming to them too. That Philip had taken the steps to share it with them rather than keeping it to himself. When I was in college in the mid-90s, I took a few semesters of German as my foreign language, and one professor I had was Professor Zang, a German man. While I learned a lot of German from him, I loved when he shared about the culture with us, the day-to-day -day things of German life that a textbook can't teach. And he recalled the falling of the Berlin Wall, which at that time had only been a few years prior, less than a decade. I remember being in 7th or 8th grade in social studies class and watching the Berlin Wall fall live on TV. After years of being a divided city, a result of World War II when it was divided in two parts, the Soviet side of becoming East Berlin and the American, British, and French sectors becoming West Berlin, a wall built to divide the two sides. And over the next 40 plus years, a stark difference developing between the two. But we watched in middle school as the tides turned and the wall came down. And what the video showed me back then, Professor Song filled in with a lot more detail up close and personal of what was taking place there during those times in the actual lives of people. And I remember he talked about people from the East going into stores in the West for the first time. And he talked about pineapples, that they were amazed to see their first pineapple, this exotic fruit that they had never seen before, let alone tasted before. Behind the wall, those in the East had only had the standards, the apples, the bananas, oranges, oranges when they were available. But a pineapple, oh, how marvelous. The shape, the texture, the prickly outside. And then to finally taste a pineapple, all the sweetness locked up in the fleshy and fibrous meat of yellow pineapple. When the wall fell, there was great joy in that city even over the simple things. And even the simple things like a pineapple were an exciting adventure. And all along, it had been right there, just behind the walls. Oh, the great joys of the gospel and all that it brings. Even the simple and overlooked things of life have new purpose and meaning. And that there is a God and he desires a relationship with us. When we discover that we are sinners in need of grace and that Jesus paid the price, dying in our place so that we might live. Hearing and responding and receiving the good news unlocks great joy as we begin to see purpose in life that we never saw before, to understand explanations of things that we never considered before, to see our lives and our world through a new lens, discovering purpose and meaning and motivation behind everything. Like Dorothy, stepping out of her crash-down home, everything goes from black and white into color. And there is great joy in that city. For some of us, our prayer might need to be, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation.
It can be tempting to be content with having great joy in our lives and holding on to it, to hunker down and crawl into our bunkers, to hold on to what we have and keep it for ourselves. But God's joy is fuller when it is shared. And sharing and being part of scattering the good news makes that joy all the more sweet. So, do we hold on to our own joy? Or can we let go of what we have for something greater still? In John 12, we read, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He says there that it was time for Jesus to finally fulfill the mission for which he came, to go to the cross. And Jesus continued, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus used this picture from the fields of the single grain of wheat. It can preserve itself, but won't be very fruitful. Or, if it gives up its life, it can produce much more. He, of course, was telling the disciples about himself, that he could stick around, but that it would be not bear the fruit that God intended. So he, Jesus, would die and it would be more fruitful, something they did not quite understand yet. But Jesus was also exhorting them and us that bearing fruit will mean that we too have to die to some things in order to bear more fruit. He explained it a bit more in the next verse. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. So we are faced with choices all the time. Hunker down in Jerusalem where it's familiar and comfortable and personally beneficial, or to allow ourselves to be scattered, taking whichever cues the Lord may send our way, as he did in Jerusalem with the great persecution that came, signaling clearly that the next phase of the church one that would be more fruitful still. By this our Father is glorified, that you might bear much fruit. So may our lives, our hearts, our churches, our ministries, our families, our marriages, our communities, our giftings, our opportunities, may they be even more fruitful still. Thank you, Lord, that from the beginning of history you have given us purpose, to be fruitful and multiply. From the commands in Genesis, Lord, to fill the earth, to the calls upon the church to scatter seeds of the gospel, to the tree of life and revelation bearing fruit each month, you are glorified when we bear fruit. Lord, fill our lives, please, with all that we need to bring forth fruit for your glory. Lord, may your life come through our lives wherever you have placed us. And if we are in need of dying so that we can bear more grain, graciously lead us in that, that we may experience the great joy of seeing you move in ways that only you can. Prepare the soil, Lord, as you go before us, and give us the faith, God, to speak and to serve when the opportunities come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.